Stanford University. Uh, let me uh, begin by a couple of uh, announcements uh, of uh, our upcoming events. Uh, on Friday, uh, February 5th, uh, Mr. Mohsen Namju, who is well known to all of you, is going to be performing as part of the Pan-Asian Stanford Music Festival. Uh, it is a Saturday. Uh, the event is at 8 o'clock. And uh, if the last time he performed in the Pan-Asian Festival is any indication, if you want to get a ticket, you should get it early. Uh, I think they're now available online. Uh, there's also another performance uh, in March, and we will let you know about the exact date of those. Uh, when you came in, uh, right outside, there were a couple of uh, sign-up sheets. Uh, if you're not on the Iranian Studies mailing list and would like to receive advance uh, announcements about our upcoming events, uh, sign up your name, and we will send those to you uh, through uh, email. Uh, I promise you, we won't use it for any other purpose. There won't be any solicitation, and we won't sell it to anybody else either. Uh, uh, essentially, that's the only way we would we put out words about our events. We don't do any advertisements, and we don't uh, even advertise in the Stanford Daily and uh, we count on the uh, word of mouth and on our list. Uh, we have a series of other events coming up. Uh, next uh, Tuesday, uh, Paul Rivlin, uh, one of the most eminent economists working on Iran, uh, is going to be here talking about the economic situation. Uh, I heard him at a conference and thought that he was simply fantastic, and so I asked him and he could make it. Um, he'll be talking about the Iranian situation. Uh, it's Tuesday, same time, same station. Uh, Tuesday, February 23rd, we have uh, Professor Shahzadeh Bashir, the chair of the Islamic Studies program here at Stanford. He's going to be talking about Persian in Pakistan, uh, the declining role that the Persian language has in Pakistani society. Uh, in Pakistan, Till a few decades ago, Persian was the language of learning, the language of theology, the language of much scientific discourse, and it is now uh, in serious decline, and he'll be talking about that. And then on February 24th, the day after that, at 7.30 at Cumberly Auditorium, the Iranian Studies Program is co-sponsoring George Lakoff. This is a British conspiracy. Uh, in conjunction with the Islamic regime's conspiracy. <laughs> they, accuse of, they accuse us of conspiring with Zionism and imperialism, so we can now accuse them of conspiring with the British. Uh, on uh, Wednesday, Saturday, uh, February 24th, um, this is the last announcement I'm going to, uh, uh, two announcements I'm going to make, one of the last two. Uh, we are co-sponsoring an event with um, the Continuing Ed program, and uh, we are going to have George Lakoff from Berkeley give a talk. George Lakoff is one of the most eminent uh, linguists, uh, philosophers, philosophers of language, and uh, one of the people who uh, essentially uh, change the debate about how debates are had about politics, the whole question of framing. Uh, he's really a brilliant speaker, so I strongly urge you to come. And last but not least, on March 9th, we have Roger Cohen, uh, the columnist for the New York Times, coming to talk about uh, uh, Iran, covering Iran. Uh, these announcements are outside, and uh, you can uh, uh, pick them up as you go. They have all of our programs. Uh, it is uh, my truly my great privilege and pleasure uh, to uh, uh, introduce our speaker tonight. And uh, it is absolutely no hyperbole to say uh, 
that uh, she needs no introduction. Um, she is, I think, uh, the most successful Iranian journalist we've ever had. No Iranian-born journalist has ever accomplished what Nazila has accomplished, to become the reporter of the paper of record, the New York Times, and to have done so in so early an age, and to have done so so elegantly, and to have done so so bravely is a credit to her profession, it's a credit to, I think, every Iranian woman, and a credit to humanity. So long as we have people who are willing to brave the dangers uh, and tell the truth and speak truth to power, I think we are all in good hands. Uh, I'm not going to take your time. You have uh, come here to hear her speak. Uh, let me just tell you that uh, she was, of course, uh, born and first educated in Iran. Uh, she got a bachelor's degree in uh, journalism. Uh, she got a master's at the University of Toronto, uh, and then began to work in the field of journalism. And before long, she was the authority of the New York Times on Iran. Ms. Fatih. Well, thank you very much for having me here. And Mr. Milani, thank you so much for your kind words. Uh, it's an honor to be here. I don't know if I deserve all those nice words that you said. Um, just to give you a background of uh, how I started doing what I was doing in Iran, I started working with foreign reporters with Western media since 1990, when for the very first time many uh, Western journalists came to cover the big earthquake in the Caspian area. And then I, I just um, fell in love with journalism. I stayed around. I started working, stringing job. And of course, it was very hard um, in the 1990s uh, to officially uh, work for any uh, Western media. So most of the work was underground, was secretly. And even after the election of uh, Mr. Khatami, it still wasn't easy. It was very difficult. I was never given a press card, simply because they said I was a woman and I was too young. <laughs> they, were, they were more interested in older male professionals, as they used to say. Um, eventually, in 2000, I was given a press card, and um, I officially started writing for the New York Times. Um, covering Iran was always a challenge. But I always thought that there was some kind of understanding. There was a big difference between um, Iranian journalists and journalists working for the foreign media. Uh, there was much more tolerance towards what we were doing as long as we uh, were sticking to certain uh, values and uh, what we call professional uh, standards, as long as we always had a credible source, as long as we were always using uh, uh, reliable sources, we were not going after certain elements that the government was very sensitive about, for instance, the leftist groups who were outside the country or um, other opposition groups that um, the government was not in favor of and considered as a threat. Um, throughout the years, um, the government started to learn to be more tolerant. There were stories that were considered taboo and uh, we were reluctant to work on, but gradually over the years. Um, there were practically all areas that we could cover. And um, my experience was that um, even under Ahmadinejad, when restrictions became tougher, Every once in a while we were summoned and there were lists of things that we were told not to write about or not to mention. Still there was tolerance. Um, like we would write about economic issues for a long time. We would criticize Ahmadinejad and then after several months we were told, we were, we were for example told to, to go more slowly on, on him and his economic blunders. 
Um, or for instance, when the criticism to the leader became harsh, we were asked to be careful about reporting them. But still it was uh, reported. Um, I, I have said this example many times. I think the government in some ways was learning very well. And Iranian society um, was not as tolerant as the government was. For example, uh, Mr. Namju is sitting here in the audience. I wrote a story about Mr. Namju. And on the same day, I had a story about gays in Iran. And that was like two days after Ahmadinejad had given a speech uh, in, at Colombia saying that there were no gays. And I was expecting to get at least some kind of warning that, oh, you should have waited like for a month and then written the story. But instead, the way I was attacked for writing the story about Mr. Namju was really, really ruthless. And most of them were people, um, they were artists who did not agree with what I had said. And I did not defend him as a, from a, a musical or artistic point of view. I just wrote he was very popular, his music was popular, and his lyrics were the stuff that young people wanted to hear. Uh, that was a very vivid example to me that Iranians in some ways inside Iran were not as tolerant as the government was. But all that changed. All that changed um, before the election. Even like um, until the day of the election, we were allowed to go everywhere with certain permissions. We had to get permits. If we wanted to travel, we had to inform the government. And the government was sending letters to authorities in places where we were going. Without those permissions, we couldn't do anything. But in the end, we were always granted the permission to go and to do the kind of work that we wanted to do. Um, even on the election day, we were allowed to go out. But suddenly, that was the turning point. It was very tangible on the election day that something was happening. We were not only me, uh, photographers, many of my colleagues, Iranians and foreign reporters. They were asked to leave polling stations. Um, and that was a very strange thing because we always used to go to polling stations, talk to people, and get a sense of uh, who was ahead, who were most people were voting for. And that was what we were reporting that, like, most people in the capital city of Tehran said they were voting for Mr. Ahmadinejad or Mr. Musavi. But we were not even allowed to do that. Um, we were specifically asked not to talk to people, not to ask them who they were voting for, even outside the polling stations, which indicated to us that they didn't want us to get a sense of who was ahead. Um, and then in the evening, of course, came the announcement by uh, Mr. Musavi that he was the winner, but the results were going to be falsified. And then we know what happened afterwards. Since the next day, we received uh, warnings, written warnings, that we were not allowed to go out anymore if we went and if anything happened to us. The Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance, the press corps that was responsible for us, we called it Ershad, would not protect us, would not help to get us out. And gra gradually, these written warnings became tougher. We were told that we were not allowed to get out. We had to stay in our offices. We had to be careful with our reporting. And then the arrests started. Um, the first alarming um, arrest was the arrest of the Newsweek uh, reporter in Tehran. That was the worst message that the government could send to the foreign media. There were some people who had overstayed their visas. They were detained for a couple of days or even up to two weeks. But his arrest sent a totally different um, message to us. Um, going out and covering the protest became a crime. Um, the, 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 taking pictures became a crime. I mean, there were photographers who were put on trial and the charges against them were taking pictures. Uh, which was exactly what they were supposed to do, was their job. Um, but we all, most of us at least, we kept going out. We saw many horrifying pictures of people getting shot, people getting stabbed. 
um, and we we reported it. I think that was what uh, the government was most scared about to uh, the word to get out what the government was doing, and that was what it wanted to avoid the international embarrassment of how the government was trying to crack down on protests and dissent. Um, I, not only I, we were all shocked uh, how this policy suddenly changed uh, um, and they became so intolerant towards um, the foreign media. Um, many journalists who were there on visa, visiting journalists, they were asked to leave. Uh, many of our colleagues who had offices in Tehran, they complied with the order not to get out of their offices because um, keeping their offices open was more important to them uh, than not being able to go out on the streets. And that is maybe uh, a positive thing that has come out, that there are still some journalists and some news uh, organizations that still have their offices in Tehran, and there is at least some information coming out. Uh, for those of us who did not have office, things were much tougher. I never had an office. I always worked out of my house. And finally, I mean, I received threats. Um, I was told that if I went out, I was identified and I would be shot by snipers. And then eventually, three days before I left Iran, uh, there was a huge team uh, of, I don't know who, uh, watching my house. My house came under very heavy surveillance and I finally left the country. Um, what I don't want to miss here is about the role of women. Um, during the protests before moving to the other section. And um, the world has watched all these videos coming out. And um, one significant thing that um, uh, the protests showed was that three decades of suppression against, against women um, made these women very brave. And uh, if they were not more than men, they were definitely not less than men. And it was not just the young women. Uh, we've seen that since the protests broke out, older women who call themselves mothers of uh, the, the martyrs, they have been gathering every week at a park in central Tehran. Women of all ages. Um, they have played a very, very important role in this protest. Uh, there has been no fear and in many ways, they have been the ones who have been uh, leading uh, the, 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 uh, the, the protests on the streets. Um, one thing that the government had ignored, or maybe it never paid any attention, uh, was uh, how this protest and how the uprising was a result of years of suppression that this was not over the voting, it was not over the election, and that Mir Hossein was not such a popular candidate, and people were vo voting to, to make him a president. This was really uh, the result of the anger and the frustration that had simmered beneath the surface. There had been other protests in 1999, in 2002, many people had come out, the students had been at the forefront of those demonstrations. Every time the government came out with an iron fist, and it, it suppressed them. And it thought it could do the same thing again. Uh, but this protest had its roots in those crackdowns. Um, it, it appeared that fear had evaporated, and people didn't care about um, suppression and... Uh, even making sacrifices, the fact that mothers were going out with their children, the fact that after uh, their children were killed, they were still talking and they were so, still vocal about, um, about their dissent showed that uh, fear did not have a place there. Um, it was very amazing that the government never tried to respond to these demands. It, uh, it still thinks that it can put an end to the protest. It still can um, suppress it instead of trying to find a solution and at least to meet some of these demands halfway. It still thinks that by going out, shooting at people, um, arresting people, torturing them, it's going to intimidate them. 
uh, I think six months after the uprising, or at least uh, events on Ashura on December 27th, uh, it showed that this movement is not going to die. And I think our role, um, the role of reporters, even those who have left the country, has not ended either. The movement is still there, and we're still playing a role. And uh, I was personally very surprised how it was still possible to cover, to cover Iran and the protests after I left. I was absolutely devastated when I was leaving. I never thought that it would be a long time that I would stay out of the country, but gradually... I kept hearing from people, friends who were released from prison, uh, warning me not to go back, that it was dangerous, that they had named me a lot in their interrogation. So I stayed. And it was a challenge in the beginning how I could work, how I could keep covering Iran um, without being there. Because even going out to the grocery and talking to people at the grocery was a way of getting a sense of how people felt, was their fear, uh, how much frustration was there. And I, I wasn't getting that anymore. Um, but thanks to Iranian people inside the country, uh, people were much more willing to share information. Um, many people have been helping me. They call me. They're friends of friends. I know they're reliable people. Uh, they go out of their way. They call. They give information. In addition to that, there have been dozens of uh, uh, self-appointed uh, journalists, as I'm sure many people can testify to that, um, People who are, stand on the sides of the streets and uh, with their cell phones, uh, they, they capture footages of the protests, of the clashes, of the fightings on the streets. Uh, I never forget, uh, before I came, there was a program on Persian VOA, which is very, very popular in Iran. Uh, it's a Persian language, um, sort of opposition uh, TV. And uh, the program was teaching people how to hold their um, cell phones with one hand and then hold the other hand underneath the other elbow. So, and it was giving them tips, don't move the camera or the phone so much, uh, just keep it still. I was shocked the next day, there were, believe me, hundreds of people on like finding a good spot to get a, capture a good uh, footage. And they were all standing like this, like <laughs> soldiers armed with, with their own weapon. Uh, and those videos have been coming out of Iran. And it is easy to, uh, I mean, for, for people who have been inside Iran to tell from the season, the clothes that people are wearing, uh, the streets that you know, and from the slogans that people chant. Whether these videos are new or they're older ones or they've been faked. Um, so these videos have also been very, very helpful in our coverage. Minutes after uh, uh, Khatami's speech was uh, disrupted at Jamaran on December 26, those videos were posted on YouTube uh, and many more. Like uh, we've, we were perhaps able even to count people who were killed on December 27th based on many of the videos that came out. People had learned, I mean, to show how many people were killed. They were taking uh, pictures or videos of dead bodies. Um, so many uh, Iranians are very actively involved in, in uh, doing that. Um, and then the other thing that I think was a new thing uh, which are at least other colleagues who have been out in exile uh, say so, is that the network that has been created outside the country, uh, this time has been different with other times, like in 99 or 2001. Um, I mean, in addition to people who have been outside the country who have become very emotional, they're very active, they're very interested, there are also lots of people who left Iran since, um, since the 2000s. Uh, one of my most interesting encounters uh, was just a month after uh, the election. I went to New York to uh, cover a hunger strike led by Mr. Ganji, and there I was really surprised. There were more than a dozen, dozen people who I had, uh, I, I knew them in Iran, and I used to interview them. Many of them were former members of parliament, activists, bloggers, uh, student leaders. They were all there. I was shocked. I had no idea these people had uh, 
come to come into exile. And uh, because they all have their own networks, the, the student leaders are in touch with students, activists, they have their own people, bloggers, bloggers, they have a very efficient network or even former politicians, former members of parliament, uh, they became very useful sources. And this network has been just expanding, um, not only in North America, everywhere. I mean, in Europe, uh, and uh, the internet has been an amazing way of communication with all these people, and they are more than eager to help. Uh, so our role, the role of journalists who were forced to leave the country has not ended, fortunately. And I think it's been something that the government has feared most, uh, how its image uh, can be affected by what uh, reporters uh, report in foreign and Western uh, media. Uh, and I hope this is going to lead somewhere. This is going to make a difference. And... Uh, real change would come. Uh, I don't think anyone knows when or how, but what we can hope for is that it would be as uh, peaceful as possible. If you have any questions. Yeah. Absolutely. That has been a question for me too. I can guess how, and I'm going to share it with you. But uh, the thing is that I mean, it's no secret. This uh, there there are people within the establishment who have access to good internet, and I am sure they are also playing a role, because as you said. People cannot even open their Yahoo or Google uh, mails. So um, there are people who somehow have access to fast, reliable internet. I'm, I'm, I was talking to somebody who, who claimed that he was a very senior official within the intelligence ministry. He claimed he has fled the country. Um, I, I'm still trying to make sure that he's a reliable source. But when I was talking to him, somebody called him and uh, was asking him how he could send him uh, some documents. And the advice that he gave him was to go to, and he gave him the address and everything, to a particular government building where he said they have wireless there. And he told him to go and use the... Um, the internet there, sent him the documents, but not to use the computer that he was sending the files from for a long time. So I think these are ways that um, people, that's the thing, uh, the Islamic regime has trained people for 30 years to circumvent um, restrictions. They have just become professionals. I mean, there all these videos are coming out. They are reliable, um, and people are finding ways to send them out. Well, you know, they were even more civilized than that. They didn't come out and chanting. They came out and marched in silence, which was a very civilized way of expressing their uh, dissent. Uh, I think there are two different things. I think the culture for tolerance is totally different than when a nation becomes absolutely frustrated with uh, very... Uh, tough restrictions even on their personal lives. 
Uh, what happened under Ahmadinejad, Mr. Ahmadinejad, uh, is just beyond what people were going to tolerate. The pressure on young people, the pressure on women, people were just beyond being harassed on the street for showing a little bit of hair, wearing boots became a crime in Iran. They announced it. People were beyond that. This was just um, a very good sign that after three decades, people had put up with everything. They just wanted some personal freedom, some dignity, respect for, for their lives. And that, that changed. I mean, the way people's intelligence was insulted on June 12 was something that people uh, didn't want to put up with. And I've said that, I mean, despite the fact that I'm saying tolerance is something that we have to learn as a society, um, Iranians, the Iranian people are very, very strange people. Last year, after the gasoline's uh, ration was lifted, uh, or at least somehow uh, the price went up, everybody was expecting uh, protests. It didn't happen. People did not pro protest over rising prices. This time, they protested over an election. And there are people who are get, being killed. I mean, the number of deaths are absolutely more than the 70 or 80 that even the opposition claims. Um, even in the first month of June, people who were counting, they came up with much higher figures. But again, people are being very professional. They're saying as long as we don't have names, as long as we don't have pictures, we don't know who they are, we're not going beyond this uh, figure. But as a society, I think uh, we need to learn a lot. We are still uh, uh, very much behind what we want, uh, the democratic society that we want. I hope it's going to come true. But as a society, we need to learn a lot. Well, this is my opinion, and everybody's entitled to their opinion. I don't want to disrespect anyone's. Personally, I don't think it was counted. I think just they just came up with the numbers. And uh, the, uh, the only, I, I have no way of proving it, but just coming up with the results few hours after it was ended doesn't make sense to me that they even opened the, the ballot boxes. Uh, one good example of that is how they came up with the number of the votes for Mr. Karubi. I mean, Mr. Karubi's votes were nearly uh, equal to the number of the spoiled votes. I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous. Mr. Karubi was popular in large cities. He had his uh, supporters in his own province. And he got about 5 million votes uh, four years ago in the elections. I mean, how could he get like 250,000 votes? They, they made a fun of that. And they said he came fifth after, after the amount of the spoiled votes. Uh, during the protests? Well, well uh, during the, I mean, during the huge protests, of course, especially during the first week, uh, there were many um, pro-government forces, especially on the big Monday, uh, when even the government acknowledged that there were three million votes. Uh, yes, they were there in very, very funny and bizarre scenes. Uh, they were sitting on the corners of the street, just like helpless forces. Uh, I think they, the government was not prepared or was not expecting such large crowds yet. Um, but after that, they started staging their own protests, pro-government forces. Uh, there was at least one large one. Um, at one of the central squares in Tehran. They brought in their people, but um, um, they have always been different in nature than spontaneous protests. One of the big differences is that there are always lots of buses in the area. And they're always, I mean, that means they're bussed in. They come in, they usually don't, the protests usually don't last that long because people go, people don't stay. Um, but there was at least one pro-government rally after the election between June 12 and uh, uh, July 1st when I was there. 
yeah of course yes yes uh i actually uh uh met somebody a very very interesting cleric um and he was he practically um I, i i met him again after uh the rally i spent a lot of time with him and he was a very interesting example of a pro-government force. He was a cleric at one of the cultural centers in northern Tehran, and he was a regular guest at the Friday prayers in Tehran, which means a lot at the front row. Uh, He was a big uh, fan and very loyal, uh, loyal to the supreme leader, to Ayatollah Khamenei. He was not a fan of Ahmadinejad at all. And he said the only reason he supported Ahmadinejad was because uh, he was obedient to the leader. And he, he wanted better relations with the West and the United States. And he said one day the protesters would know that we wanted the best for the country. I mean, he had his own logic. With the government, you mean? In, in your writing, I mean, obviously you were more, um, you understand better the culture and the people uh, than Western journalists, but did you have conflicts between, on one hand, being Iranian of origin and on the other one, writing to the West and having to um, write the um, most objective picture? Well, that's part of our job. I mean, we had to write objective stories even after the protest, which might have appeared that we were not objective. But that was our job, to be objective. But as I said, there was maybe earlier, the government was more sensitive. But since the 2000s, they were quite tolerant. They understood what we were doing. Well, you know, the, they were the ones who came under the worst pressure, uh, not just recently, I mean, uh, since the late 90s. I mean, the suppression against the local journalist, Iranian journalists, has been the worst. Uh, and many of them started leaving the country, uh, especially when Radio Farda, Radio Zamane, many of these uh, Persian language radios started their work. Whoever could leave, whoever could get a job with the BBC, with the Persian radios, they would leave. And uh, I know that it became much more frustrating for those who stayed behind. But uh, as you know, one of the largest numbers of professionals who left the country after the election were journalists and photographers. Many of them left with the backpacks that they were just working during the election. They were traveling with the candidates. Um, I don't know how many. I I knew about a dozen of them, but I'm sure the lump, the number is really large. Two questions. One, uh, how do you personally address this dilemma if you find out about people within the government in Iran who are undermining the government, and you have information about that? Would you uh, publicize that and thereby undermine them, or would you uh, not publicize that? Which I think. Number two, what about websites of people like Mundazeri, whose website is down, but when it was up, he was quite outspoken in terms of uh, in Farsi and with his fetwas and with his uh, sayings and teachings uh, representing a particular point of view. But since his death, his website is down. So what about other organizations uh, outside of Iran? 
bringing up copies of his sayings, which people now don't have access to. Do you have any thoughts on those two? Well, regarding your first question, of course we do not want to jeopardize the position of any of our sources. I mean, that's part of our job, not to put anyone in danger. Uh, we are very conscious of that, and uh, of course, if as long as they are inside the country, as long as they are our sources, we would not do, do anything to cause any trouble. But unfortunately, most of our sources, sources those kinds of forces are in jail. I mean, that was one. I mean, if I was in Iran right now, I wouldn't have more, I wouldn't have had more access uh, than now that I'm here. It was impossible to do any work in the days after the election, simply because all our sources were in jail. And it was a very, very sad and devastating uh, situation. Uh, regarding your second question, you know, I, I did not check Montazeri's website after his death, partly because uh, I didn't feel the need to. There are so many weblogs that are simply mushrooming. And you can get information about anything, even on other websites. So if they hack a website or if they f do something that block it, uh, there are so many others that suddenly appear and uh, we have been able to get information. Um, I'm not sure how this cyber war that they have started, how effective it's going to be, if that was your question. Hezbollah, you mean in the Hezbollah of Lebanon? Well, I think that's one of the demands of people. Iranian people do not want to live in isolation from the world. They want to be part of the international society. They want to integrate. That's, that has been one of the very vocal demands that they made. Even uh, presidential candidates kept on campaigning on that. And yes, from the slogans that people have been chanting on the streets, uh, that means people don't care. They don't want their... Uh, resources to be um, to be channeled to for for war purposes to another country. Absolutely. Um, given the cyber wars and the hacking that you were just talking about, um, can you talk a little bit about how you determine the credibility of what you um, are reading from within Iran? Yeah, that has been very tricky. Um, first of all, there are there is this uh, uh, bloggers network outside the country who we are in touch with, and they know who run these websites. Uh, that's the first uh, way of judging about them. But again, I mean, the first mistake that they make, and we find out about it, we become very, very cautious. Whatever, personally, whatever I see on websites, I double check them with sources uh, or with people who have, like, if they're about a protest or about an event, I definitely double check them with sources on the ground. Uh, we do not go blindly. It, the, the websites just give us the heads up. Uh, you didn't address it in your talk, but I'm very interested in what you know or would want to say about Iranian, particularly the people's attitude towards the U.S. Well, I think if there is one country in the Middle East that has been uh, pro-U.S. all the years since 1979, it was Iran. But um, Iranians became very, very concerned about the Obama's administration uh, towards the Iranian government after the uprising. Fortunately, that's changing now. But I heard it from many people, even like people on the ground. I'm not just saying analysts. People were very, very scared. What if the West, what if, what if the Obama administration reaches a deal over the nuclear program with, uh, with Ahmadinejad? Because that would give legitimacy to a government that has no legitimacy in the country. And I, I, I heard it from people who said that if it took like years for Iranian people to forget about America's interference in the 1953 coup, it would take them at least a century to forget about this one. 
because now they are making sacrifices, there are bloodshed, and they do not want a foreign country to come and give legitimacy to a government that lacks legitimacy at all. And any kind of deal, any kind of agreement would not be accepted, even if it's what Iranian people want, because they do not want this, uh, this government to gain that kind of legitimacy from other countries. Fortunately, that has changed, <laughs> or I hope so. How much support? How much influence they have, these people? Well, I think uh, it is not the influence of figures. I think it is the influence of these Persian language television channels. They have huge influence. As I told you, I mean, that simple training, a 10-minute training on, uh, on the VOA Persian, I saw it the next day. That meant people were watching and people were caring. They were doing what they were taught. No, I think uh, this is, if, if the 1979 was the revolution of cassette tapes, this is going to be the revolution of um, internet, cell phones, and uh, internet, and even television channels. Uh, I totally agree with you that the lead blog was wonderful and did a great job, but I think all the credit goes to uh, Rob Mackey, who runs that uh, that blog. I was just sending him stuff, and they were sending uh, they were stuff that I was sending to to my section of the paper, which is Foreign Desk. Uh, he's been doing a wonderful job, and I've told him he has never been to Iran, but he has done a much better job than many Western journalists who have traveled to Iran many many times. Yeah, the, the lead block even has been doing a great job afterwards, even on Ashura, it posted all the credible videos. Um, uh, he, Rob has been very good at um, getting information, reliable information and posting them. But I cannot talk about the lead blog at all. Well, you know, this started after June 12. I mean, they wanted any government in Iran to engage with the West, to reach agreements, to decrease the tension. Uh, but that changed after June 12. Um, so this is a totally different scenario. It's not that they do not want to normalize ties with the West or with the United States. They just want to be able to forward their own political agenda inside the country now. And they do not want any other country to come and give legitimacy or uh, any kind of support to this government that they do not consider legitimate. Perhaps, I don't know. But, I mean, as you said, uh, the numbers that they came up with, uh, that overwhelming victory for Mr. Ahmadinejad was so unacceptable uh, that people felt their intelligence was uh, insulted. Whereas 
Well, I think the Revolutionary Guards, uh, the section that supports Mr. Ahmadinejad, and we're not talking about the whole Revolutionary Guards because the Revolutionary Guards is also a very divided uh, force. They have been at the forefront of uh, the crackdown and even what many people uh, refer to as the coup d'etat on June 12th. And they had planned this. I mean, this was nothing uh, that... uh, suddenly happened or was planned a week before the election. Uh, we have information that uh, uh, that the, the Revolutionary Guards were training their forces since six months before the election. They were giving them uh, sort of military training on how to confront protesters on the streets, how to beat them, how to use their batons and clubs. So this was something that uh, they, they saw coming. However, they probably did not see it uh, persist the way it did. Um, But just to continue answering your question, I think their most efficient um, arm has been the besiege. Uh, uh, The security forces, uh, as long as I was in Tehran, uh, many of them refrained from attacking people or even engaging any kind of in any kind of ruthless, brutal beating of people. They they held the batons, but they didn't beat people. Uh, but it was just the besieges and members of the Revolutionary Guards who were actively trying to intimidate people. And we know that um, after the arrests started uh, taking place, the Revolutionary Guards were in charge of it. They have announced that commanders of the Revolutionary Guards said that immediately after the um, elections, they took charge of the security all over the country. Uh, all the arrests of former officials and activists over 100 people. Uh, it, it took place uh, under the control of the Revolutionary Guards for the first time. Intelligence Ministry was not involved. So I think it's been, whatever has happened, the Revolutionary Guards uh, has been uh, responsible for it with the help of the besieged. The fact that they are losing their supporters or the numbers of their loyal supporters is dwindling is something else which hopefully would... Uh, hurt the force in fundamental ways. So what do you think is going to happen as the future progresses? And what do you hope? I mean, do you have some hope that things are actually going to change? He seems pretty entrenched right now. And I'm just wondering, is there any hope that, that something not many good things have come out yet yeah, yeah um, there, there's lots of hope but it is almost impossible to predict what's going to happen I think what everybody's hoping for is going to be a peaceful but meaningful change uh, for more democracy for more freedom something that Iranian people have been wanting for for many years, even at the time of the 1979 revolution, the only good thing that has happened is that uh, the number of the protesters has not uh, uh, dwindled. It's, I mean, after all the uh, bloodshed, after all the brutal crackdown, people are still coming out. Uh, what happened on Dece- December 27th was was really heart-wrenching. Uh, just seeing uh, the videos of people being run over, being shot at. Um, I don't know if uh, uh, many of you saw the video of uh, the Besiji guy coming out and shooting blindly into the crowd. And then somebody says, Hamle. And uh, I don't know how many people there were, but it appeared at least dozens of people uh, started. Hamle means attack in Persian. Dozens of people started march- marching towards the armed guy. And this shows that people are not afraid anymore. Um, but in the, in the meantime, the government um, is not giving up. Yes, please. What is the best thing that the USA could do now? And what is the worst thing that the USA could do now? Well, my job is not policy advising. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I hope whatever they do, they avoid um, giving any kind of legitimacy to a government that the majority of its people are fighting against. I think the worst scenario would be reaching any kind, because this was uh, uh, this was uh, 
one of the theories that the Iranian regime is weak now. It's the best time to reach a nuclear deal with this government. But the fact is that even if the West reaches any kind of nuclear deal with Iran, even if it is something that Iranian people have been wanting for many, many years, the Iranian people, if anything happens, would never respect that deal because it was made with a government they do not consider legitimate. Um, well, China and Iran have uh, major trade ties, uh, which none of the two countries want to uh, jeopardize. The Chinese are playing a very major role in developing our oil fields. I mean, most of them are uh, handled by them. The Revolutionary Guards are engaged in lots of uh, big uh, trade with the Chinese. Uh, and, the China, and China is getting a lot of oil from Iran. So these are factors that cannot be... Um, Uh, well, the Chinese government and the, the Chinese and the Russians uh, have always uh, put uh, a priority over their uh, economic and trade ties with Iran. I don't think they have been so. Um, they haven't cared so much about political uh, upheavals inside Iran. I mean, the Russians have never made any comments. Maybe now they are becoming. Um, dubious about their positive uh, relationship with Iran because of the protests. Uh, but they have never seemed to care so much about what Iranian people want. Both countries, they have uh, particular interests. I mean, Russia's role in developing, in building the two nuclear plants uh, in Boucher, or at least one of them is definite, and um, China's uh, uh, interest in our oil fields, in our oil, and our ties with, I mean, most of the uh, deals are being given to the Chinese now. The nuclear program uh, has become, I mean, this is something that the regime has done, has become a totally different thing. Uh, people have very strong uh, feelings about it. I mean, you talk to ordinary people on the street, and this is all before the election, and you ask them, do you want nuclear energy or do you want nuclear uh, program? Uh, to them, nuclear or the nuclear program is a nuclear bomb which is a deterrent uh, power. And they immediately tell you that if we had a nuclear bomb in 1980, Saddam Hussein would, would never have attacked us. Not so many people would have been killed. So a lot of Iranians inside the country want Iran to be a powerful uh, country in the region. Uh, but if you put the question in a different way, if you tell them like, for example, would you like to get a free kebab twice a week? or have this much, uh, this amount of the budget spent on nuclear program every year, they would tell you that they prefer the two meals of kebab every week. <laughs> so I mean, a lot of people don't know how much of the money, country's money is going into the program. Um, but relations with America is totally different. Relation with America has been one of the pillars of the revolution. And uh, if that goes away, that means the major ideology of the regime is just vanishing. Sure. You said that women are to a great extent leading the protests. Like, what has been the response from the men? Does the women's participation view a sort of just a feminist struggle, or does everyone agree, men and women, that these women's, women's rights are part of a larger framework of democratic values? Well, I cannot say that they are leading, but they are a major force. They are definitely a major force. I think women have affected the movement, the opposition, in two ways. Uh, one of them is their frustration, their anger. Um, that gave them the power and the courage to come out. They have really reached the end of their rope. Uh, they are simply fed up with mm, the rationing at universities, the, uh, the, the pressure on their 
clothes, uh, family law. I mean, you go to the family court and the family court is packed with women who are filing uh, for divorce and they have no right under the law. Uh, they are married to men who are beating them, who are addicts, who have no jobs, they're not willing to work, and they still cannot get divorced. But the husband, on the other hand, according to the law, can marry a second wife whenever he wishes. So Iranian women, they have become educated, they have become a force, uh, they are just fed up with that. But the other, the second way that I think the movement, women's movement, has affected uh, the opposition after June 12 is the way uh, Iranian feminists started a civil dialogue with the with the um, government, how they try to uh, start a dialogue uh, a kind, with a kind of tolerance. And in peaceful ways, they started asking parliament to change laws little by little. That's how the protests started during the first week before it started to get very brutal, the crackdown become brutal. People were silently marching in the street. We did not have this history. We've never had this kind of protest in Iran. This was perhaps affected by uh, the peaceful movements of women, or for example, the campaign of one million signature. Many women from different classes, they all gathered and they agreed uh, over certain minimum rights. And they never called for violence. They were not confrontational. And they just tried to engage in a dialogue with the government. Um, I personally think yes. Uh, whenever they didn't like uh, foreign journalists who were in Iran on visa, they simply expelled them. They simply kicked them out. Uh, this happened many, many times, uh, especially to British journalists or uh, journalists working for the British media. And also, um, no, no. Uh, the, there were American journalists who worked for British news organizations. Many, many times they expelled them whenever they didn't like their coverage. Um, it was the same for visiting journalists. Uh, I, I mean, I, I heard this from authorities every time I went to them to ask for visa for our visiting journalists. And they told me that they always liked new people because new people, when they came to Iran, they had such negative perception. And when they came and they saw people criticizing the government publicly, even many people within the government criticizing the establishment, uh, they always wrote sort of positive stories that there is democracy, there is freedom. It was only during their second, third, fourth trips that they saw how the suppression existed and then they started writing the kind of stories that um, the authorities didn't like. And usually journalists were blacklisted after a year or two. Um, the ones who kept coming back uh, were the ones who wrote in ways that the government liked and there were not so many. Well, if there are no, no more questions. Question regarding the uh, journalism of the pro-government in Iran. There are a number of newspapers, a number of journalists, and also abundance of uh, uh, news, sort of uh, website news, you know, which they seem to have people that write, they seem to have reporters that go out and get reports. How did they, you know, how did they are created? Are they basically money coming or you know from the government or is it just are the people actually believing those you know how, how do you assess those type of journalism that supports basically the current government? You mean like the state television and the well, of like for example you got you know say uh, you know many many websites that they call themselves news you know on, online news and also all the newspapers Many of those other 
have a number of new, you know, uh, people that they write for them. And some of them they write editorials, a lot of you know, things. For I'm, I'm just asking you to could you give us an assessment of what you see, how you see those? Are they credible or just basically none of them are credible? What, what do you see with them? Well, even before June 12, even in some of those very hardline um, newspapers, you could see good journalism, uh, especially if it was on social issues, cultural issues. Uh, Hamshari was a very good professional newspaper for a very long time, um, especially its cultural section. The inside section of the newspaper was very good. The, its journalists were trained very well. Uh, Kehan was quite a different story. They had a uh, special kind of reporters. They were very sensitive about their political reporters. They always wanted to have uh, loyal forces. Majomijan um, was mainly run by the state television, and so those kinds of reporters. But again, even inside the state television, uh, there were lots of... Uh, professional uh, people uh, who were not even supporters of the regime. So, so, I mean, everywhere you can find people who are just doing their job because they're being paid and they have no other means of uh, earning a living. But the ideology uh, that dominates these um, news organizations, like Kehan, that is something that was very scary. I mean, what Kehan was not... Uh, a newspaper, Kehan was an ideology. It was it's it was a force within the country. Um, Kehan always knew who was going to be arrested. <laughs> it knew about the interrogations, so that one was different. But again, things have changed since June 12. None of the journalists uh, inside the country are daring to write anything um, outspoken. But still, they're they're still doing their job. I think it's, it's a period that is going to pass, and uh, it's just very, very difficult. Thank you very much. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.